Welcome to Cafecito, a podcast dedicated to fostering connection and empowerment within the Hispanic and Latin American community. We're going to get started today with our Cafecito with Ernie Perez. Ernie's the head of our tax practice uh, globally, and we uh, we were talking last week about how to make things different. We've done uh, we've tried a few different uh, formats with our different cafecito speakers, and wanted to try this uh, podcast kind of dialogue going back and forth. So uh, we'll turn it over now. Ernie, do you want to do just a, a quick introduction? I'll let you introduce yourself, then we can get into some of these discussions. Sure, sure. Thank you. First of all, thank you, uh, Ag, for. Uh, extending the invite to, to join you all. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And, and I also uh, commend you and and the, and and the rest of the team for what you've done over the past year. It's pretty amazing uh, uh, what you guys have put together and, and uh, some of the things you're thinking about. So uh, kudos to you for taking the initiative. As a quick introduction, um, I've been with the firm for over 17 years, going close to 18 years now. I started my career, I grew up in South Florida, went to the University of Georgia, and uh, also went to Georgia State University for law school. Started my career in 1992 at Arthur Anderson. Thought I was going to stay there for the rest of my my career. Uh, made partner in 2001. I have the distinguished honor of being a member of the last class of partners uh, of Arthur Anderson. Made partner in September of 01, and I was out the door in May of 02. After the Enron debacle, joined Deloitte uh, for a couple of years, and then a partner that I really uh, worked very close with uh, at Anderson, who actually uh, was part of leadership uh, by the time Anderson imploded. Got to know Tony and Brian because, as many of you might know, it was Alvarez and Marcel who did the Arthur Anderson wind down when Anderson got into trouble. Got to know Tony and Brian, and in um, infinite, infinite wisdom, mentioned to Bob Lowe, who was individual, why don't you come over and start a tax practice uh, at AM? Bob came over in 04 and um, he was somebody that I enjoyed working with. I went to Deloitte and uh, as a partner, and but um, I wanted to work with somebody who I respected and um, he had a, a vision, a dream of creating something special and came here uh, and been here ever since. Um, started my background is in really international tax, so I deal a lot I've, over the years, dealt a lot with um, all parts of the world, Latin America predominantly, but also Europe and Asia. And uh, over time, I've had different uh, assignments, and, and for the last seven years, I've been heading up the, the tax practice. Wonderful, thank you. And we have some uh, some discussions we want to have around that here soon, especially for those of us who don't know tax, other than our annual federal tax return <laughs> that we dread, right? Yes. So, Ernie, you came to uh, Miami from Cuba as a child, and as you and I have discussed, that's near and dear to my heart because my mom mm -hmm. did the same thing. What was it like for you just maybe earlier on as a, on a personal level growing up as an immigrant in Miami or in the US, I mean, overall, and then you, like you said, you went on to live in Georgia as well. Sure, sure. You know, I, I came when I was uh, two uh, with my mother, single, single parent. And, you know, AG, growing up, you know, you probably, we felt like we owned this place, right? <laughs> That's how we felt it. But as you get older, you, you, you realize what your immigrant upbringing really what it does and, and sort of the foundation it, it does to you. But um, I think my immigrant upbringing is a big part of who I am in terms of, for example, when I was growing up, we came over, a lot of families came after. So my house was always full of family members that were coming from Cuba. We would get close to, we, we would 
put them up, you know, give them room for a couple of times until they got stable. Uh, saw that hard work and determination. So that that was ingrained with me. But it really didn't hit me until I went to the University of Georgia. Um, and I'll, ne I'll never forget this. I was at the University of Georgia. Keep in mind, I went to Georgia in the 80s. There were still KKK marches in, in Stone Mountain, by the way, uh, and uh, Forsyth County. But one of my good friends that I met as a freshman was um, a black man, um, Fred Anderson, from Milledgeville, Georgia. And Fred, Fred and I became you know, good friends. We were both in school of business. He was in finance. I was in economics. And I remember, I remember um, talking about what we wanted to do, what we were aspiring for. And him and I both wanted to go to law school. And I, I sort of had my plans mapped out. This is what I want to do. And, and, and one day he said to me, how, how can you talk with so much confidence? And, and it really caught me off guard because that's the only way I could talk. But I realized, I realized where he came from. I also realized where I came from. And so to, to, your, to answer your question, my immigrant upbringing, growing up in Miami, gave me a, a confidence that, that everything was achievable. And uh, that's what I've used uh, for my entire life. And, and I think that has helped me tremendously, you know, uh, further my career uh, over the years. Thank you. Yeah, and those, there's, I think there's a lot of people in HLA right now from Miami, and there's a lot of Cuba is a strong country to have a presence there, but obviously lots of other countries like Venezuela and yeah. um, you know, Puerto Rico came. There's lots of, of groups Nicaragua, there that have contributed to absolutely. that. Yeah. 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 We're, we're going to talk a little bit more about Miami in a second, but um, what I'm curious to see how much you remember just, just your recollections of how things happened when the, the Mariel boat lift happened. I'm not trying to age or date you, but you were around then and then because the, there was there was the growth and then there was Mariel yeah. and then things kind of went went and came again, right? Yeah, well, I remember, um, so Marielle happened, I was 14, 13, 14 years old, and I remember getting in a car with uh, my my family and driving to Key West. And I still remember vividly, as the boats were coming in to Key West, we, we had our family members there, and we went to pick them up. Um, some of them went to detention centers. We had some family that actually were sent to uh, Pennsylvania, others to detention centers in, 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 uh, in Florida. But uh, we basically housed a lot of our, our family members and and um, and helped them help them get their footing and, and and basically get them going. What people may or may not remember is that when Castro released the, allowed for the folks to come, he also emptied his prisons. He emptied the prisons and basically put the folks not only the prisons but also the the hospitals where you had uh, mentally impaired individuals. So all those folks came to to South Florida. And if you look at the, the early 80s, besides the drug trafficking and everything else, you know, South Florida, I still remember there's a Time Magazine cover uh, of Miami called Paradise Lost. And uh, and because of some tourists that were here from, from Europe that they got killed. So Miami in the mid to early 80s um, was uh, a, a place that was pretty crazy. And it wasn't until George Bush, the, the father really got cracked, started cracking down. On, on on the drug uh, drug cartel and drug business down here that things started to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I was very young when that happened, but I remember hearing and I remember them calling them the Marielitos, right? Were the ones Marielitos, that came yeah. on the boat yeah. lift, and they yeah. Yeah. that was definitely a negative uh, a negative connotation. Yeah, it was not it was not so, said out of out of uh, endearment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a term of endearment. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> So going into a little more into the professional world now, uh, for most people, 
taxes are paired with death, right? Yeah. <laughs> but when when you were interviewed by Hispanic executive, you said you knew you had found your thing when you took your first tax class in law school. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure that's probably surprising to a lot of people, especially like an engineer like me. Uh, could you talk about that? Had you thought about being a different type of attorney? Did that change you? How, what was that process like? Yeah, so, you know, I think, you know, I'm passionate about tax, so I think tax gets a bad rap. But if you think about tax um, and you think about, I was an econ major, right, before I went to law school. So if you think about it, tax is about problem solving. So not that dissimilar from an engineer. So when you, when you have a tax problem, it really makes you be creative and think about how do I solve it? And then you have your facts and you have the law. And then is the law in your favor or are the facts in your favor? And how can you basically do it? And in our case, you know, we, most of us on this call probably think of tax as, you know, your 1040s, right? But most of our clients, all of our corporate clients, private equity clients have to navigate not only through U.S. tax, but taxes in all sorts of jurisdictions, which, which comes into play with supply chain, manufacturing centers, repatriation of profits, allocation of capital. So what I enjoyed about tax all these years is the problem solving aspect of it, because you're really helping create value to your clients by making sure the capital gets uh, put to use in the most effective manner and 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 then deploy it and then use it in whether it's manufacturing, whether it's creating jobs, whether it's, you know, getting back to the community. So I always tell our people in the tax, you're part of you, you play a big part in capital markets because part of your job is not just to save people money. It's basically to make sure capital is deployed in a very efficient manner. It's interesting for where you say that because as you're talking about it, I remember an engineering class I took called operations research where you have a set of parameters that give you constraints and you have to find a solution to operate within those constraints. That sounds a lot like the, the kind of problems you're solving. I got advice, by the way, I got advice a long time ago from somebody, one of my teachers that he said, Ernie, when the law's on your favor, pound table with the law. If the facts um, are in your favor, pound the table with with the facts. And if either the facts and the law are not in your favor, just pound the table and start screaming loud. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe you'll win the argument that way. <laughs> I need to, I've tried that before at home, and that's probably not the right place to do no, that. No, no, it doesn't work with the law. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. So when you, when you had originally gone to law school, had you you didn't you weren't sure what kind of law you wanted to practice? What was your plan originally going in there? I knew I knew I wanted to do some some sort of business, some sort of business law. So um, so I, I first year of law school you take required courses. So really, second year is when you start taking your electives and um, took corporate law, took securities law, took commercial paper, and then I took a tax course and um, tax one out. It, 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 uh, I, to be honest with you, AG had to do with a professor. The professor was probably one of the best professors I had who just made the class interesting. So we got into class, it was problem solving, it was thinking outside the box, it was arguments as to why, what kind of position, is it policy? So all, 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 all that created uh, a favorable impression. And then I, I, after my second year, I clerked with the chief counsel's office of the IRS, and, and that furthered my, my interest in, in the tax world. And that just opens up so many more jokes that you actually worked at the IRS. But we'll, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, that's good to know. I think, I think that really helps out for a lot of people. And a lot of us, just as we're people that are still making decisions for their careers. But then also, uh, one of the big things that I've been trying to uh, sell and market for HLA is, those of us that have a better understanding of the other practices and the other capabilities that we have at AM, 
we're going to be able to be that much stronger because then we can collaborate, right? And that's one of the things I want to try to do with HLA is give us exposure to people in different practices with different skill sets that they might not otherwise come in contact with, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. Makes sense. Yeah. So can you talk about the evolution of AM? Uh, you were asked by, you know, Tony and Brian to, to start the practice through your connections when you met them through through Arthur. What, how has it evolved in the 17 years that you've been here in terms of, you know, yeah. starting from where you were and where it is now globally? Yeah, it, when you go, when you go back, you know, when I started, just, I'm going to put this in perspective. I started, uh, the firm was, we'll probably do close to $3 billion this year, the firm, not to eight to 3 billion globally. Well, we have about 6,100 people, maybe 6,500 people by the end of the year. And about two thirds of our revenue are US based and about a third are outside the United States. When I started, the whole firm was $100 million and we had about 500 people and 99.9% .9 of the revenue were restructuring NACA revenue and 99.9% .9 of the revenue was earned in the United States. Just to put that in perspective, right, of what it was. But if you go back to that time frame, Sarbanes-Oxley had come out. It created a lot of dislocation in the marketplace and Tony and Brian, to their credit, um, you know, saw the opportunity to get into the tax business, get into what was called then business consulting or CPI, corporate performance room today. Um, eventually in 2006, got into the transaction advisory business, got into the DNI business, right? And, and, and so forth. So, um, so think about it in the context of, you know, you have a restructuring practice that's been around for, for, for a long time. Every other business was nascent, just trying to grow. Forget about cross-selling, forget about working together. We were just trying to build a business. So it created just, you know, tunnel vision to create your business. And it, it was, when, I look, when I reflect on that time, it was a lot of fun, but we weren't doing a lot of cross-collaboration. And the first seminal moment that happened for the firm was Lehman Brothers, a financial crisis of 06, 07, because it was really a seminal moment because the firm couldn't handle all the work unless it brought people from tax. We had 30 people in the Lehman Tax Department running the Lehman Tax Department, bringing transaction advisory folks to help unwind Lehman's private equity business, bringing business consulting folks to help out, bringing DNI folks to help out. So it was really what the, the first time the firm realized that what we're building here has synergies beyond just having you know separate practices. So that was a big moment which allowed us all to grow. And so as the firm has grown, I think what has happened is that we, a lot of the practices have been able to mind the opportunities. So when you look at the tax practice today, uh, is about a 200, globally is about a $230 million practice. And primarily US and UK, we're growing now in the Netherlands, we have uh, Mexico, we have Brazil, and, and it's growing. 50% of our work comes from direct market penetration and 50% comes from us collaborating with big A&M, whether it's restructuring, whether it's private equity, or whether it's, it's in the corporate space. So I think that the firm has evolved. And, and by the way, I mentioned to you earlier that we'll probably do close to 3 billion. A third of those 3 billion are internal referrals. In other words, it's, it's basically one division bringing another division in. So I think where the firm is today is really in a fantastic place. And when you ask the question, how has it evolved? Is it evolved now to the point where we're connecting the dots? And to your point earlier about finding out what people do, that's how we connect the dots. Because the one thing that our entrepreneur 
platform has been great for the growth, but one of our struggles is we keep adding talent every day and it's hard to keep up with the talent, what the talent, what the skill set the talent brings in. So we need to make sure that we know exactly who's coming in, what they do, because when we connect the dots, that that is when we really add value and, and, and do well in the marketplace. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Cafecito so you never miss a new episode. Also, visit our website at alvarezandmarsal.com to learn more and to connect with us.